This is a summary of the second sicha of Parsha Shaftim, because the sicha is Chelik It's a siyum that I've concluded the tractate of the Gemara called Masechet Zvachim, which is devoted to sacrifices in the temple. And the concluding section of the Talmud, the Talmud devotes a lot of pages, not only in this Masechet but elsewhere, but specifically in the end of this tractate of Zvachim, to discussing something called a bama or bamais, which is that before the temple stood in Jerusalem, before Jerusalem was chosen for eternity, it was possible for a Jew to build an altar in his hometown, wherever it was, in his backyard, and to offer a sacrifice to God. And then when the Besamidish was built, the Besamidish is chosen, it's forbidden to bring a sacrifice anywhere outside of the Besamidish, so much so that it's one of the worst penalties of the Torah to do so. It's excision of the soul, it's kardis, it's like eating on Yom Kippur, and like many other such sins, and it's a terrible thing, it's an Aveda. And that's called a Bama. So a Bama used to be a beautiful thing, but now we're not allowed to do it. And the question arises, why is the Gemara devoting so much time, energy, discussion, in the talking about something which cannot exist anymore, because simply put, we cannot bring such a sacrifice. It's biblically forbidden for us to bring such a sacrifice outside of the Besamek. There's these special laws of how to deal with a sacrifice in a bum, on a bama on these platforms is not applicable anymore. And in fact, the Gemara will ask this question all over the Talmud, where it asks about different things. It says, The Gemara asks, why are you asking such a question? Or why are you bringing this up? What happened, happened. It doesn't really matter because it's a story in the past. And there's no halachic ramification of the conversation. So what's going on? It's this very serious question. Now, perhaps we would want to suggest that it's coming because a non-Jew is not commanded to bring all their sacrifices to the Beis Hamikdash. They're allowed to bring an oila, burnt offering to the Beis Hamikdash, but they don't have to. They could bring a sacrifice anywhere. And a Jew is, is not allowed to sacrifice their sacrifice for them, but you're allowed to instruct them how to do it in the most beautiful way and so on. So maybe we would suggest that this is the reason why it's being written because it is a, uh, a mitzvah which is applicable nowadays because if a non-Jew wants to bring a sacrifice, the law is that you show him how to do so. The problem is that I have no reason to assume that the laws that are applicable to a Jew in this scenario would be applicable to a non-Jew. In other words, the Torah, it says that David al-Bnei Yisrael, speak to the children of Israel. And all of these passages that the Talmud is learning out, these different laws about how to sacrifice an animal on these platforms, it's all speaking to the Jewish people. And therefore, by non-Jews, there's, it wouldn't, it, who said it would be an obligation for them to do it that way? You show them, generally speaking, what to do, but these, the, the details that the Gemara is discussing have nothing to do with a non-Jew. And, uh, and so that, that would be problematic. And even if you argue that the best way to do it is the halachic way, and you're here to show the non-Jew how to do it, the problem is the whole non-Jew bringing a sacrifice is not an obligation. He, if he wants, he could do it. The Talmud would devote so much time to discussing some scenario which is very unusual which is um which is not obligatory we don't find such a thing in fact it's interesting you would think that the talmud would have much more discussion about the obligations of non-jews in general 
Talmud gets into in the tractate of Sanhedrin telling us what the obligations of a non-Jew are, the seven Ohide laws and so on. It has a couple of pages, but not, not the amount of detail that you would expect. And the answer is that any page devoted to that question would be a amount of time which is being taken away from discussion of more relevant issues. Because ultimately, the things that have to be discussed, unless we've finished discussing all the matters relevant to the life, to our lives and our obligation and what Hashem wants from us, where are you finding the time to have these discussions, these uh, theoretical discussions about something which is not even obligatory? Now, if something's obligatory, then it should be discussed. But to get into uh, details about things which are not obligatory, that's much more difficult. So the question arrives right back. Why are we discussing a bummer? And the answer is, answer is a brilliant answer. Deb explains that a prophet who comes and tells us to bring a sacrifice on a bummer. There's a law in the Gemara that you listen to a prophet even if he tells you to do a sin. Doesn't matter if it's a, if it's an authenticated prophet, and we have the criteria halachically of how to authenticate to know whether a prophet is a true prophet of God. Once we have a true prophet of God, you listen to him even if he tells you to commit a sin. With one exception, if a prophet tells you to commit idolatry, even for a moment, you know that he's a liar and you kill him. By the way, other sins as well. If he tells you that permanently the law has changed and now this is permissible, also you kill him, you know that he's not a true prophet. We mean that on a temporary basis, a prophet could tell you, a love Tishman, you should listen to the prophet even if he tells you, to sin. But my friends, who says that just because the prophet tells you, you listen to the prophet, who says that all the laws that were applicable by Anabama in the olden days, before they built the temple, this is going back a really long time ago, you have to reach back in history to about 28, 2900 years ago, who says that those laws of Bama would come back? Maybe the same way the prophet is telling you to transgress Torah law, and therefore you should bring, and you have to listen to him. So you bring the sacrifice even outside of the Beis HaMikdash. He would probably tell you all the things that you should do. <laughs> the whole thing is a transgression, which the, which you're supposed to be doing this transgression because the, the prophet's telling you to do it. But just follow the instructions of the prophet who said the laws would come back to the laws of Bama. This whole thing is one big exception from the rule. And the answer is that actually there's another pasuk which teaches us that the law that you listen to a prophet, specifically regarding Obama, specifically regarding sacrifices outside of the Beis HaMikdosh. Because there's another Pasuk in uh, Parsha Zre'eh, actually a previous Parsha, where it says, guard yourself, in chapter 12, verse 13, guard yourself lest you bring your burnt offering any place that you see fit. And the Talmud learns, and, and, and the Chazal, our sages learn from there, any place that you see fit. But if a prophet tells you to do it, then you should do it. And the question is, what do I need both verses for? I already have a verse from this week's Torah portion, Eilu Tishma, which tells me that you always listen to the prophet even if he tells you to do a sin. What do I need that verse over there? And you can't say that it's two different sages, two different opinions, no such thing. Because the, the Sifri, the book of the Sifri, brings both, brings both. So what's the explanation? What do I need? Seemingly, once I have a verse telling me that you always listen to the prophet, even if he tells you to transgress, I don't need a specific verse regarding this particular commandment of sacrificing animals outside of the holy temple. And the answer is that it's teaching you something unbelievable, that really the law of Bama never changed. 
we are still have the halacha of Bama. The idea of, of, of sacrificing outside of the temple is still a relevant halachic law in Judaism. With one caveat, that there is a prophet has to tell you now is the time to do it. In other words, and when, when, but when the prophet tells you, it's not that you're transgressing. Now it's permissible, a separate thing. Not that the prophet told you, therefore you listen. The prophet told you, and now the mitzvah of Bama returns. The mitzvah, originally when Hashem commanded us not to sacrifice an animal outside of the temple, he said only when it's you doing it on your own accord. But if there's a prophet there, then of course all the laws of Bama are in place, and therefore it's perfectly relevant. And not only is it relevant, it's even relevant nowadays because the era of prophecy actually, it may have come to an end, the era of prophecy, but there's no source, there's no source that there can't be prophecy even nowadays. According to Maimonides, it's clear that there could be prophecy in nowadays. In fact, the Rambam even writes in a letter about someone near, someone near him uh, that, he, that he's performed all the criteria of a prophet and he's performed the necessary miracles and the Rambam writes that he is a prophet without any doubt. That's the Rambam's words. So we see very clearly, I, it said in the end of Tractate of Saita that at the end of the era of prophecy, prophecy went up, nostalgia. If you look very closely at the words, it doesn't say it disappeared. It didn't say that it was nullified like it says regarding the other things over there. Wisdom came to an end. Wisdom was nullified, right? Fear of God was nullified. No, but here it says goes up because it's being very precise in its words because it, it means that there was no one worthy to have prophecy. So therefore, prophecy went up because it didn't have anywhere to rest. The divine presence had nowhere to, 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 to come to. But it doesn't mean that there's an essential problem. If you have someone worthy of prophecy, then for sure. And the Ramam even states that he has a tradition that in the year 1316, Prophecy is going to return to the Jewish people to begin the era of the precursor for the redemption. So therefore, all of this is perfectly relevant. And the truth is, it doesn't even matter, matter how relevant it is practically. Because being that the law of Bama is applicable and never went away, if it's not even a question of discussing, it's like talking about something which is perfectly relevant, even if practically speaking, it doesn't normally happen. Because we're talking about an obligatory thing. We could talk about the Ir Hanidach as a city of Israel which has to be destroyed, which is a different discussion, even if it never happened, but it's perfectly legitimate to discuss it at length because you're discussing an ob obligation, one of the 613 commandments. To give one more example the, uh, that the Rebbe offers, um, that uh, there's a commandment to wipe out, to annihilate the seven nations living in Israel, to clear them out of the land of Israel. I, King David, already finished the job 2,800 years ago, 2,900 years ago. There's no survivors or anyone who did survive left. We kicked them out. We accomplished the mitzvah. We cleared the Holy Land of these seven nations. Why is it one of the 613 commandments? A commandment is only a commandment if it's there for eternity. If it's not, not a temporary mitzvah, and the answer is because it's still applicable. If you would have seven, one of the seven nations, right? Let's say they would come back. Let's say they would come back to life. I don't know. It's a theoretical discussion, true, but it's an obligation that whenever you have the seven nations living in Israel, you have to kill them, you have to destroy them. So over here as well, it's perfectly legitimate to have this long conversation about the laws of Bama because it's perfectly applicable um, nowadays. And the Rebbe connects it with the beginning of the tractate because the beginning of the tractate says that when you bring a sacrifice without having in mind for that specific 
sacrifice, it's a kosher sacrifice in the temple. It's a kosher sacrifice, but you don't fulfill your obligation. The owner, the one who brings the animal, doesn't fulfill his obligation. So we see something very interesting. We could divide it into two. There's the animal and then there's the human being. Is there enough holiness in the picture that the person uh, could draw could, could, is part of the picture or it's just enough for the animal? And the reason why it's relevant to this conversation, such a, uh, a distinction, which is very subtle, is because by Obama as well, we have the same thing. We have a law by Obama that you can't fulfill a obligatory obligation on you in Obama. It has to be brought to the temple. You could bring a sacrifice. So in other words, you could have the holiness of the sacrifice without it having in any way having the level of holiness that it could you could uh, fulfill your obligation of the owner. It meaning there's not enough holiness to include the owner as well. That's the, basically the point. And, but if it's through prophecy, interestingly enough, that Ebba points out, if it's through prophecy, then actually there is now an obligation on the person. It's not just the holiness of the sacrifice. There's also in, it incorporates the obligation of the person. So that also, there, in other words, there's a more intense um, level of holiness, even more than in the olden days when they used to bring as a regular thing a sacrifice in Obama. Now if you bring it because a prophet told you to bring it, it's even more intense because it has the value of Obama, but it also has the obligatory part of it that it, it, it that it has enough holiness for the owner because he's fulfilling the mitzvah of listening to the prophet.